Welcome to Through the Trauma Podcast. My name is Amber Larkins, published photographer, storytelling expert, visual artist, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach. This podcast was born from one question. How do I get inspiring stories of triumph out to the people who need to hear them the most? Come with me, enter my world where lives are getting changed, heroes are getting developed, and greatness is being achieved. Hello and welcome to another episode of Through the Trauma Podcast. I am Amber Larkins, your host, and today I have with me Dylan Lundgren. Dylan is a TEDx speaker and an addiction recovery advocate. His mission is to work with individuals and organizations to increase engagement in the addiction recovery process and improve long-term outcomes. He also likes to dance and do karaoke. So Dylan, I'm so grateful to have you here. I think this is a much needed conversation and I'm excited to get into your expertise. Thank you, Amber. It's really good to be here. Tell us a little bit about you work in, in recovery, um, working with addicts. Is this correct? I do. I work with individuals that have either a substance use challenge or a mental health challenge. So what got you into this, this line of work? Uh, to be honest, personal experience. So I'm also in, in recovery. I'm an individual in long-term recovery. And that was a lot of uh, what laid the groundwork for me getting into this field professionally. And I started off, basically I started off going to rehab and having no idea what I was going to do with my life because at that point my life was kind of a mess, you know? And so, but having had the experience of getting sober, staying sober, and then having the opportunity to work at the same rehab that I went through, it kind of paved the foundation for this whole new life path, this whole new career. So that's, you know, that's how it started. And, and it's, I've been in this field as long as I've been sober. So for almost 20 years, 2004, since 2004. After doing this podcast for some time, I've saw that people that have come out of a certain type of scenario then helping other people, it also helps them heal. Have you noticed totally. that in your recovery? Yeah. For sure. I mean, I got sober through 12-step uh, programs, and that's a big part of that, although it's not the only way to get sober, but it is how I got sober, and it's a big part of that program is the service aspect. So for sure, I've definitely, definitely noticed that and experienced that myself. Yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm a firm believer that you kind of almost have to go through something to fully understand and grasp what someone is going through in that scenario. Like I know I've talked to different coaches and, and different therapists and things. And sometimes it's almost as if they're removed, if they don't have some type of personal experience, either directly or indirectly. Um, do you think this has made you sure. much better at, at what you do? I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely something to be said, I think, for clinical experience, you know, studying a subject or, you know, but there's also much, a lot to be said for the lived experience, you know, being able to connect about what actually one has gone through versus just reading about it, like, let's say in a book, you know. Mm -hmm. So do you feel comfortable sharing a little bit of your story, like how you got into it? Was it a drug addiction? It was. It was, and I know, uh, and yes, of course, I know that you know a good amount of what we're what we're going to be talking about today has to do with trauma. And the longer that I stay sober, the more I can see how much those two overlap. So for me, addiction and trauma, mental health, 
in trauma. So to bring the story back to kind of look back through this lens of my addiction, um, I grew up in a pretty, pretty good household in terms of everything was provided for physically in terms of food, shelter. Uh, that being said, it was a very hostile emotional environment. So my dad was not emotionally healthy or well. And that showed up in him getting very jealous and possessive of my mom um, and being very emotionally abusive and even physically abusive, mostly with our, our dog, uh, which was tough to watch. So looking back, you know, I had a lot of that at an early age. I remember living in a lot of fear, um, just visceral, you know, visceral fear. Um, that being said, I didn't really know that that was having it, you know, I'm my kid, so I didn't know that that was impacting me. Uh, other than just, I was just afraid a lot of the time, but I didn't pick up a drink or a drug mainly because I saw what it did to my, my grandfather was an alcoholic and some of my friends were into drugs. And so I just, I don't know, something about it. I just didn't want to do it because I had this judgment that it was only for bad people or it would only do bad things. Alcohol and drugs would only do bad things. And I had a lot of judgment around it which kind of saved me, not that that's the best way to view it, but it kind of kept me from going down the rabbit hole, so to speak, at an early age, because I didn't pick up my first drink until I was in college, which for a lot of people is kind of, you know, is, is late. Um, so in high school, I was a scholar athlete. I didn't do any drugs. I didn't drink. Um, I got good grades. I was voted the scholar athlete of my class. On paper, it would look like I was very successful. But what I didn't have was an ability to manage my emotions. Um, I wasn't taught that. I was taught how to do calculus. I was taught how to work my ass off and be the captain of the wrestling team. And, you know, these were not bad things, but I wouldn't say that they were what I needed. Um, so when it got to college and I found people that weren't drinking under a bridge, so to speak, you know, or uh, alcoholics, I thought, oh, wow. So these are people who, are still getting good grades and still showing up to class, but they're partying on the weekends. And I'm like, maybe I could have a drink. And I did. I had my first drink. And all this stuff that I was experiencing, this inner turmoil, so this inability to manage my emotions, to feel good about myself, um, I was really struggling in high school. Even the same year that I was voted the scholar athlete of my class uh, was the same year that I started to consider suicide. So when I had my first drink at college, it quieted that inner turmoil. And I made, it made me feel okay in my own skin. Maybe for the first time ever, but definitely for the first time in a while. And that led to some pretty amazing experiences, to be honest. You know, for a while it was fun. And I thought I was becoming the person I wanted to be. So I was the party animal, you know, I was this, I was that. I was all these things that I saw in other people in high school. And thought that's what happiness looks like, you know. It looks like being the center of the party. It looks like you know having the most attractive partner. It looks like having the nicest car. Like all these things that I saw, and I thought that's what happiness is. And so I got some of that stuff in college, and for a while it felt good. Um, but what ended up happening was all those deeper issues that I wasn't dealing with, these emotional challenges, the self-esteem challenges, even the stuff I learned from my dad you know, dealing with a partner and I would get jealous and possessive, like all those things that I 
just kind of unconsciously picked up. Um, alcohol quelled those, but eventually I needed more alcohol to quell them. And then eventually there wasn't enough alcohol to quell them and it started to make it worse. So now I had two problems. Now I was drinking too much and I had these other challenges that I never dealt with. And I didn't have any coping mechanism. My coping mechanism was drink. You know, so then I moved on to other substances because the alcohol wasn't enough. And so I moved on to, you know, other substances, marijuana, ecstasy, acid. And at this point, I'm starting to face consequences, getting arrested. I mean, there's a lot more there, but, in a, but at the same time, it was in a short period of time. So within a few years, I was getting arrested all the time, and now I was losing jobs, and now I was like basically homeless, going from the scholar-athlete in the high school to being in the paper all the time for getting arrested within you know four years, five years, something like that. And it just spiraled. And so I ended up in rehab for the second time after a bunch of different tries at staying sober, getting sober, but I didn't really have that deep surrender that's necessary for that type of life change. But the second time I went to rehab, which was in 2004, was when that really, uh, really took hold and kind of changed the trajectory of my life, which I'm on now. Uh, but in there, you know, we talk about trauma in there was that early, what we call developmental trauma. You know, the early years when my brain is just forming, my ideas about myself and the world were just forming. There definitely was some trauma there. Um, and the longer I stay sober, the more I realize how much that probably impacted me. But there was also trauma that I was self-inflicted. You know, I, I had very maladaptive, maladaptive hope mechanisms. You know, so I overdosed a few times on different substances. And, you know, to be fair, I was trying to deal with the best, with life, with the best way I knew how. And it was a horrible way to do it, <laughs> you know? But at the time it was like one of the only tools I had, which was substances, mm -hmm. you know? And so through that process, I also kind of traumatized myself and ended up in situations that were traumatizing. So uh, getting assaulted by a gang, um, you know, things like this, cutting myself. I mean, just, there was you know, a good history there of some, some trauma. So, now looking back, so 2004 until now, we're almost in 2024. So that's been 20 years that you've been sober. Almost, yeah, September of 2004. So a little under, uh, yeah, a little under 20 years. Yeah, that's or a little over 19. Yeah, yeah, that's remarkable. I mean, that's that's awesome. Um, so that's cool. I, yeah. I'm curious, like I've heard people that have come out of addiction, out of an addiction, say that though you can come out of it, you are never, you're like, you always have a craving for it. Do you find that mm. to be true? Uh, to me, it's kind of yes and, or it's kind of a mixed bag. So I would say no and, or yes and, it's a little, a little both. So I don't have an obsession to drink. You know, it's been a long time since I've had that. And I'd say that's probably one of the, the biggest blessing of my life today is I don't have an obsession to drink. That's what makes addiction addiction is, you know, is a twofold disease. So mentally there's a you know, preoccupation or an obsession with something. 
And then physically, there's a, a physical craving for that thing, despite negative consequences. So that's why, you know, I would, I would continue to drink, even though it was destroying my life, because I had a mental obsession that was so powerful that it just clouded out everything else. And when I took it into my body, there was a physical craving that would make me want more, despite the consequences. So it's kind of a twofold thing. So I don't deal with the mental obsession anymore or the physical craving because I don't put it into my body, if that makes sense. That being said, I still have a brain that like most, like all humans, that wants to feel good and doesn't want to feel pain. But with people that struggle with addiction, I feel like that is, um, everyone has that as a human, but people that struggle with addiction have that to a, a much higher extent, you know? So my yeah. brain is always looking for the thing, you know, it's like, if it can affect my dopamine. It's like, and it's, it's easy or simple. It's just like, I'll want more of that. And I'll want more of that sometimes to my own detriment. So I do have to be much more mindful of things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the way I eat, my relationship with sexuality, um, you know, anything that can affect my brain chemistry in an addictive way, you know, it's important for me to be mindful of that, that relationship. Yeah. That's probably the best way that I've heard anybody describe that as to how you can still have a craving yet you don't. Um, and I know like, I think all humans struggle with some type of addiction. I know drug addiction is really frowned upon, but you have people that deal with food addictions or sex addictions mm -hmm. or, you know, all these different types of things and the dopamine release in the brain, it seems like that it's a similar type thing, regardless of mm -hmm. what the addiction is, but you, you're still dealing with that. So I think that's great how you described it. Cause I think most everyone, even if they've never struggled with a quote drug addiction can relate to that on some regard. And for sure, I know, yeah, right. Yeah. I'm telling you, like I come out of the fitness industry and I had I mean, I do believe sugar is highly addictive. You can't compare it to drug addiction because that's it. You know, it's not as detrimental. But I, you know, I think that sometimes when you look at just even something so simple as a sugar addiction and the how hard it is to overcome that, I've never myself never been addicted to a substance. But if I had to relate it to that and think that now not only are you getting the dopamine release, but now you're getting an extra feeling on top of that. So an extra feeling of like, now I don't have to worry about the internal or the external things that's going on in my life, the trauma, the childhood trauma, the different things that are, that are happening. But I, I want to ask you this because I've had a lot of people on a lot of guests that have come on to the show that have talked about different form, different modalities to treat trauma. And, mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure you're aware of some of the treatments that people will use. And sometimes they will use like psychedelics and things like this to overcome childhood traumas. Um, what are your thoughts or do you have thoughts on that? I'd like to, I would definitely answer that, but I'd like to circle back if it's okay to the sugar yeah, because it's so interesting that you bring that up because I actually haven't had sugar for over five years now. And I found myself getting into uh, actually in recovery from substances, I found myself addicted to sugar and flour and to food, really. 
um, and getting off sugar was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do compared to getting off crack or alcohol. It was, for me, it was very intense. And the last time I had sugar, I gained like 80 pounds in, in five months. Um, so it's no, it's, you know, it's definitely not a, not a joke for, for some people. And I think it ties into this, this thing with, with our, our brain where it's like, once it hooks up relief to a substance, um, it doesn't really matter what that substance is, but it, it can be really hard to break. And and if you're familiar with a guy named Tim Grover, he was the coach of the per personal coach of Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan. One of the first things he does with all his athletes is he has them get off sugar. And he says, if you want to know what somebody's made of, have them get off sugar. And I was like, wow, that's that's interesting. So it can be. I I consider it to be one of the reasons why I'm able to be. Uh, in such good shape today is like strictly just getting off sugar is probably one of the best decisions I've made aside from, you know, obviously stopping drinking and drugs, but that's, is I have, bring that up. I have read Tim's book, um, one of his books and I, but I didn't know that about the sugar thing, yeah. but I personally, like, I don't like feeling like I'm addicted to anything. So I have gone through extended periods, you know, not, not five years. I I do love sugar, but I've gone yeah. through, you know, a three month period stretch where there, nice, where I yeah. have no sugar, uh, just to be sure I can do it, you know, that, that as much as I love it, that I can be removed from it. But mm -hmm. I, I highly recommend anyone, like you said, if, if you want to know what you're really made of, get rid of the thing that is your crutch, <laughs> the thing that you love yeah, to do, yeah, yeah. you have to find alternatives. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So circling back to your question about other alternatives, and, and I think if if I heard you correctly, you're asking ways that I've personally dealt with trauma or specifically how it might look for somebody who's in recovery to deal with trauma. Yeah, I would love to know that as well. Um, and then if you have any experience on different modalities as far as, you know, I know this is still being tested. And uh, I know a lot of people, some people swear by it. I had a guest that was that swore by marijuana that that helped him mm -hmm. through some of his his trauma. Um, mm -hmm. I've had other people that have talked about psychedelics and these different types of um, um, I'm trying to think because that people go go through these different things. So it, M MDMR, I believe, is is a type of therapy. Um, MDMA. MDMA. Yeah. MDMA um, is a type of therapy. So like, I'm just curious if you have any experience with that. And then I guess then also how you've been able to heal or cope with the trauma that you suffered in your early childhood. Yeah, it's a great topic and a very controversial one in the, uh, in the recovery world. Uh, and the reason is because some of those substances that are being used have a potential for addiction. And so that's where it gets, it's a really good conversation because it is important to, to talk about. And I think it's important to not automatically dismiss something because it might, might be a problem, right? Because obviously it's helping people too. Like you just said, um, for me, I remember I was actually, uh, you know, yoga is something that's helped me out a lot. But I, but I bring that up because I spent a few years living at a residential yoga center in recovery. You know, I was already in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. 
and I had a few friends who were in recovery and they came to me and they wanted to try for kind of, kind of healing purposes. They wanted to try mushrooms and they brought it up to me and I was like, eh, I don't know. And, and so they did it and it was a horrible experience for them. That's not everybody's experience, but I bring that up because it was like the intention seemed to be good. It seemed to be in a safe space. It seemed to be done in a safe way. That being said, it could be done. It could have been done in a more sacred way because it wasn't a very clear intention, like in a therapeutic setting with a therapist, you know, it wasn't that, but it also wasn't, let me just use this to get high. That being said, their experience was like, it wasn't good. One of them, I think it took a long time to get back on track with sobriety. The other one just was a terrifying experience. What I, what I'm interested in when I hear people say that, and I have not had any experience in therapeutic settings with some of these substances. So MDMA I've used, I mean, it was a great experience. Um, and one of my favorite substances, because it just, it may, it really spikes a lot of the chemicals in the brain in the way where you know, I'm feeling much better about myself. I'm feeling more connected. I'm feeling more alive. Like all these things that we, we all want to experience. That being said, I also uh, overdosed on that um, because I wanted so much of that. I wasn't concerned about the consequences and I took too much and I almost died. So, and I still wonder how much of just that one experience affects me to this day because i don't know if this is a real study or not but there was a, a study just kind of word going around that mdma or ecstasy which is mdma and some other chemicals mainly mdma is the the sole substance the main substance in, in ecstasy would burn holes in the brain specifically the part of the brain that affects personality so when i hear about people having a good experience my my question would be like over what period of time, you know, because I had a great experience on ecstasy. Um, if you look at it that night, but if you look at it over the course of years, it was a horrible idea. Um, so I think taking a look at it, both in the, like from a microscopic view and a macroscopic view, I think can say a lot. And then also it's some people don't necessarily struggle with addiction but they label themselves as addicts. And that's how, you know, I actually like to use a term like individual struggling with a substance use rather than an addict because an addict has like a stigma to it. But if someone might think they have an addiction and it's not necessarily addiction, it's more of a problem. And the difference is if I have a problem with drinking, I can stop if there's a significant event. So maybe I get a DUI, maybe I crash a car. And so that external stimulus is enough for me, but I'll stop. Or maybe I just don't feel good. I get a hangover and I stop. I have enough willpower to stop or to curtail it back. Addiction doesn't work that way. So addiction is I have such a, a, a overwhelming mental obsession and physical craving that no amount of external uh, consequences are really going to stop me. You know, until I until I get in enough pain or enough suffering that I'm willing to surrender to a process of change. And at that point, it's usually not a minor change. You know, it's usually a drastic uh, overhaul of one's lifestyle. So if someone's looking at this from, you know, they have a problem with substances and they can, let's say, smoke weed and it helps them. 
that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody with addictive tendencies is going to be able to use weed safely and help them to heal. It actually could be the opposite um, because it could send them down a road where they're going back to relapse. Like the last time I, for example, the last time I smoked marijuana, I just thought I was going to smoke a little weed. And I had three felonies and was locked up in Hartford Correctional in Connecticut within a few weeks. And I just thought I'm just going to smoke weed. But it tricked, it turned on that part of my brain where then I was going to crack. And then once I'm smoking crack, I don't care about consequences. It just spirals. So it's kind of like, you know, I've met very few people that have really good experiences over the long haul using substances to heal. I have a lot more experience with the, the other side of things. That being said, I do hear often just through internet or, you know, just like you just said, I do hear about it, but I don't know many people personally who've had a positive experience over a long period of time. When you were doing this, did you, did you, were you ever in a, like a therapeutic type setting or was it always kind of, you were doing it on your own? I was doing it on my own or with other people. Yeah. When I was doing uh, MDMA or uh, mushrooms, when I was still getting high, yeah, always like just with friends, party mode, you know, that being said, there were experiences where it was kind of spiritual and therapeutic. But it's tricky because then it gets like when I think back to that, it's like, yeah, that was a night that was kind of a therapeutic experience, some of them. Mm -hmm. But I also chased that to the point of my own demise. You know, so it's like, because it yeah. turns something on in my brain, I'm not going to necessarily do yoga until I end up in jail. You know, yeah. I'm not going to eat broccoli until... I overdose, you know what I mean? So there, but there's something about those chemicals that have that potential for someone in addiction. It's a slippery slope. And I still, I'm not, I'm not saying I would never, I've actually looked into certain things for myself, like ketamine. And, but I've always come to the point where it's like, you know what, I, if to me, it would be like a last ditch effort when I've tried everything else. So there's still this thing of like, I, even in a therapeutic setting for me, um, I, I might try it. I'm not to, opposed to it. And I'm not saying everyone else should be opposed to it. I'm just saying if someone has an addictive proclivity, it's not something to be dismissed lightly, regardless of what the public narrative is. Yeah. yeah, that's, and that's very wise. You know, probably what you're describing is triggers. You're, you know, because you have a past in these things, these things can trigger you in certain ways right. that, can right. spark yeah. and it, more of an addiction or more of wanting that type of thing. Um, I have, I, so I've never tried any, anything like, I mean, I've smoked weed, but I've never tried anything like that, that has, um, you know, completely altered. However, I've talked to a lot of people on here that, you know, they swear by different things. I did have a, a doctor on here that was talking about ketamine and mm -hmm. how much they had seen lots of people heal using ketamine. Um, so I don't, I don't have a definitive opinion one way or the other, but I do think that that's the great thing about having these types of conversations is that people have to find what works for them. You know, you have to find what thing works. And if you, these things are very touchy subjects and not just touchy subjects, but things that you have to be really careful going into. 
Um, I also believe though, in saying that, that you, that I have, I have some issues with the pharmaceutical industry because even though those are legalized and prescribed by doctors and, you know, but they, some of those too have very addictive, you know, traits and characteristics. And, um, so I'm just a proponent of like everybody find, like find the thing that works for you. But I personally don't think that people should just take these things on themselves because it's hard to know how much is too much. It's hard to know. It's hard to monitor that. And then my question has been this, if I, if I have trauma and then I take these things, what happens if I open up a can of worms and then this trauma is then lingering, (laughs) you know, in the moment, maybe I feel better, but then now it's opened up something to where when I get back sober, now I'm Mm. dealing with all this unwarranted trauma that I don't want to do with. Talk to us a little bit about now the work that you do. So you've, you've had this experience, which has been, and you're very open about sharing these things, which I'm very grateful for, because I feel like people need to share their stories. Now you've moved into this line of work. Talk to us a little bit about some of the people that you help and how you relate to them. Yeah, so we work, I work for a company called Feinberg Consulting, and it's a, a case management, and we do case management intervention. We support Basically, support families and individuals that are struggling with mental health or substance use challenges. So I get to to work with the company and do what I love to do and use some of my skill set. And so what I do within that company is I help individuals with things like yoga, uh, meditation, sometimes nutrition, basically a more holistic perspective than just focusing on not doing a behavior or not using a substance, trying to incorporate some more proactive tools to help them along that path. And then as a company, we're looking at how to help the whole system or the whole, the whole family in that process. So when people come to us, they're usually coming to us oftentimes and unfortunately, but oftentimes in a crisis. And that crisis usually is a system. It's not just one individual, right? So even though there might be a person that's in active addiction, there's usually a system in place with the family members, with the partner, with the people around them that's kind of been keeping the cycle going, you know? And so what we do is we help to address, compassionately address that system and create a new system and a new structure so that we can help the person of concern move in a more positive direction. Uh, But what I do is use things that have helped me out personally, but also help our clients out. Like I said, things like yoga, meditation, nutrition that's specific to mental health and substance use challenges. That's in in a nutshell what I do, what we do. Do you see that mental health and addiction kind of go hand in hand? Uh, definitely. Yeah. Mental health, trauma, and addiction, like, you know, all related in my opinion and experience. So it's very rare that we'll get somebody occasionally nowadays we'll get someone who just has substance use, but oftentimes they're both, right? It's mental health and substance use. And when we look deeper and it, doesn't necessarily come up right away, but oftentimes, you know, you're looking at some, some trauma somewhere along the way that's been, you know, fueling some of this, right? A desire to to check out, a desire to numb out pain, this type of thing. Do you see that the majority of people come to you are the addicts that are ready to 
to get on a better path? Or is it sometimes the family that, that brings them in? So normally it's the family, but the way that we work is we work as a team, which is very helpful because when you're dealing with a system or a structure, you're dealing with numerous people and numerous parts of the system. And so what we're looking to do as a team is to work with those different parts. And oftentimes, even though we have a, a context or an objective that we're working on, and it's not something necessarily we come up with. It's something that we're working with the family on in terms of what's their vision, what's their, their goal. But when we're doing that, we're working from different places on different things and trying to not just address this like in, in with you know, one, uh, with just one, one person. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So you're working on yeah. it as a, a complete system, um, kind of holistically. Yep. So the reason right. I ask that yeah. too, is because if I have listeners listening to the show that, that maybe they have someone who has struggled with addiction, I've actually had family members myself that have, that have struggled with addiction and, um, sometimes it, you feel lost as a family member. You don't really know where to go or what to do or who to reach out to for help. So uh, do you guys work with people all over the U.S. or are you kind of re remote into one location? So we would actually work with people internationally, mostly in the U.S., but we also work with people internationally. And, and just to circle back, because I just realized I don't think I really answered your, your question there about do we work with people that are willing or, or not. Um, so oftentimes when the family comes to us, they're the ones that usually are the ones who are showing the most willingness, right? They're concerned about their daughter, their son, their wife, their husband, and they're coming to us. But when we work with that system, what we're working on is oftentimes, at least a good amount of the time, we're working with the family on how they can approach the person of concern in a way that's loving and supportive, but that also will help that person become willing. So if they're not willing, it'll usually help that person become willing. Sometimes we'll get people that show up that who are willing right off the bat. They call us of their own accord or their family calls us, but they're already on board for getting help. So it's kind of a mixture of that spectrum. But we work with people all over the country, sometimes all over the world. You know, depending on what I do is mostly virtual. So I actually teach yoga classes to individuals virtually. We do mindfulness practices virtually, coaching on nutrition and things like that virtually. When we're doing an intervention, we're doing it in person. So we're meeting up with the family and, and coming up with objectives, letters, all the stuff necessary to create that safe space for the intervention. But that's in person, we do that stuff. But we do this all over the country, sometimes internationally. So this is really a, a beautiful process because I have I mean, I've not really dug into this a whole lot, but I've not seen a process like this. It's almost as if you're dealing with the whole system holistically, not only holistically in the family, but then holistically in the body. So not only are you dealing with the physical chemical addiction that someone has, but then you're also dealing with the root cause, which is a lot of times mental health or trauma. Um, and you're working with that and then you're teaching them other coping mechanisms because I personally have never understood how someone can get completely free of addiction. You know, they say you have to want to be free of addiction, like you can't force someone to do it. 
But to me, what you're describing seems so perfect because it's like now I'm taking someone and I'm saying, hey, there's a reason that you have this and let's work through, let's let's get to the root cause. Let's get to the bottom line totally. of why you're doing the things you're doing. And to me, that seems like you probably have a huge success rate. Yeah, I would say we don't, we don't have a, we definitely have a good amount of clients who are very successful, long-term success, which having worked in this field for almost 20 years, I can tell you it's, it's, you know, not necessarily the average, right? We probably have an above average uh, success rate. That being said, we don't have a tracker necessarily, but I just tell you from my experience working with clients that the outcomes are much better than what I've seen, generally speaking, working in this field. And it's unfortunate because you brought up, I mean, it's fortunate, it's a good thing, but it's unfortunate that that not more places create a holistic treatment model. That's what's unfortunate is that even though what we do is amazing, we do really good work, it's unfortunate that very few places, there definitely are other places and companies doing great work, and there's a lot that are just out to make money. And you kind of touched on this, I think, when you were talking about your concerns with pharmaceutical companies, Um, just this idea of like, just take a pill and it'll all be fine. A lot of that is fueled by marketing, and a lot of that is fueled by greed, right? So. you know, we do really good work. We have a holistic model. It's amazing. And not everybody out there does that. And so what you were touching on, last thing I'll mention here, is the way the way I heard you say it was, was basically like creating the soil, you know, like I forgot how you just put it, but basically having somebody want to get sober is the only way to get them sober. And I think there's truth to that, but it also is about what we're inviting them into. So if I'm bringing them into a garden that's full of weeds and crap, you know, it's like, are they really going to want to grow in that garden Um, versus inviting them into a garden that's been weeded and there's nice plants and flowers, you know, it's still going to be uncomfortable to grow, but it's a, but it's a much more compelling environment to grow in. And so there's a, there's a element there of like, there's this like, gray area where yes someone needs to be willing but you also can kind of pull them into willingness or or invite them into willingness within a certain area if that makes sense some people are not they're just not ready they're not willing and there's nothing you can do to change that other people they nothing can stop them they're so willing to change right then there's this gray area it's like if you create the right environment or you work with the family in a certain way you can create circumstances, a situation in which they will shift to a place of willingness. Well, it kind of goes back to the question of what do you really want? What do you really want? If I'm addicted mm. to a substance, what is it that I really want? Do I really want to be addicted to the substance? Do I really want to go out and get high all the time? Or do I want a healthy, happy life? Am I doing the substance mm. to get the healthy, happy life that's not giving me the healthy, happy life? So totally. I think what what you're doing and, and kind of what you and I are both describing here is this idea of getting to this the root idea and asking someone, like, what is it that you really want? I just want, maybe I want a family. Maybe I want to build a house. Maybe I want to, whatever it is they want in life, their purpose, those innate desires that's inside their heart. And 
not being able to accomplish those things because of a trauma that's like a roadblock mm. that stands right in the way and you're trying to put a band-aid on it with drugs but really there is no putting a band-aid on it the infection is still boiling in there so yep. it's like getting to the root idea like, what is it that you really want out of life and we can help you and you don't have to mm. do the drugs you don't have to take this stuff and we can help get you there so i think that's the beautiful thing about what you guys do and um man it just i love bringing people on like yourself who can Thank you. you know share the things that you guys are doing because in the modern day culture we are seeing a lot more i think mental health maybe it's just more sure. displayed i don't know but it seems to me like we're hearing a lot more of mental health these days. And so I don't know. Do you, do you think that yeah. you see an increase in that? Definitely. And, and what you touched on before with, with pharmaceutical influence is uh, it's an important thing because right now we have, we've seen a good amount of marijuana induced psychosis, especially among younger kids. And so the, what's the word, the uh, disparity, I think would be the word between the public narrative and what we're seeing is pretty big. So there's, I live in Massachusetts and there are dispensaries popping up all over the place. Um, but from what I'm told, the, the content of THC in a lot of the marijuana from the dispensaries is really, really high. And that's what's causing some of these problems. So it's not like the marijuana that I was smoking 20 years ago. It's a lot more concentrated, and that's creating some serious challenges, uh, especially for younger people, so much so that they're getting very, very serious psychosis to the point where even when they stop, it can last you know, up to like six months or longer. Um, and psychosis meaning like paranoid schizophrenia, like pretty severe type of symptoms. Um, and if you look online, it's like... You're not necessarily going to find that unless you look for it. Um, so there's a big, there's like, yes, I think the mental health is growing, but I, and I think it's a result of certain things that have been exacerbated. So the, you know, I'm not against, I'm not taking a stance on legalize, don't legalize marijuana, but I'm talking specifically about the marketing, right? So I think it's important to look deeper. That's why we were talking about like, are these things helpful MDMA or this or that. And I'm like, could be, but I think it's really important to look deep, you know, to take a deeper look at something and to take a longer look at something. Um, because from what, what I'm seeing, and it's just a small piece of what I'm seeing in terms of the work we do. But when I take a larger look, look and hear what's happening around the country, uh, there's a lot of that going on. Marijuana induced psychosis among younger kids is becoming a thing. And with the proliferation of dispensaries, it's not, I mean, it's not like that's going to stop. That's only going to get worse. Um, Is there an age? A lot of that's because of, yeah, yeah, so 16 to 25, maybe something like that. Yeah. Okay. So, and so that's when... right when the brain is forming, right? So that's what makes this so concerning is like the brain is just starting to get set in its ways, so to speak. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's concerning. And then also just kids at a, even a younger age. I have kids and uh, 
<laughs> I have a 12 year old son and he knows about edibles. He, they, mm-hmm. they were pretty open dialogue, open communication. And they share with me some of the, you know, kids at their school is, is knows about edibles and have edibles and have brought edibles to yeah. school. And I'm just, yeah. it's heartbreaking. So Dylan, tell my audience where they can maybe find more about you or, or your company. Yeah. So the company that I work for is called Feinberg Consulting. It's FeinbergCare.com, like C-A-R-E. So Feinberg is F-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, FeinbergCare.com. And then my main source of information that I do personally in my own my own recovery advocacy is on YouTube. It's a channel called Recover You, like Recover Y-O-U, Recover You. And so you can check that out as well. We put out you know educational videos, motivational videos, stuff like that. Or you can just search me up on social media, Dylan Lundgren. And we'll put all that in the show notes as well. But if you're listening, he just told you where to find him. And um, I know you you have to run today, Dylan. I would love to talk more with you about all of your expertise in this because you definitely give me a, a new way of thinking about all these things. But um, any final thoughts or final takeaways you'd like to leave us with? You know, not that it comes to my mind. I think we covered a good amount of, of content today and I appreciate you bringing me on, Amber. It's really good to to see you again and to be here and, and to share my experience to hear some of your, your experience. So just thank you again. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to through the trauma podcast. If you have found value in this episode or believe in the mission behind what we are doing, please subscribe so that you never miss any future episodes. Also be sure to check out our transformation project at transformation through trauma project.com where we help inspirational stories get heard on a larger scale through multiple platforms. If you know someone who can benefit from this episode, please share it with them. Until next time.